When we, after we were on Shark Tank, we ended up making a lot of money. Our margins were insane. And so we had kind of a windfall that was unexpected and uh, novel. And so what I did is I started spending it all, just throwing away money like an idiot. That is really the stupidest thing that I've done. Because when I look back, if you look at the future value of the money that I flushed down the toilet, it's it's frightening how irresponsible that was of me to partake in. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas what I call Seven Hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. Today, we dive deep into hat number five, the investor's hat, as I interview my guest, Matt Franklin. Matt is a world-class video producer, product developer, podcast host, serial entrepreneur, and the inventor of Posture Now, which earned him a Shark Tank appearance and has become a multi-million dollar selling product. Let's dive into the seven hats and hear the story of how mismanagement of funds left Matt's mom destitute and sparked a passion in Matt for helping entrepreneurs never to experience such pain. Let's dive deep and explore the financial opportunities available to achieve long-term financial freedom from my second Shark Tank alumni. Matt Franklin, welcome to The Seven Hats. A pleasure having you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This is going to be good. I am so excited. I think this will be a great conversation, especially because entrepreneurs really need to focus on their finances. There are many stories to tell, so I think we should get started, but before we dive into the numbers, I think everybody wants to know, who is Matt Franklin? So because this is a podcast for entrepreneurs, the question that I always ask is, was the dream to become an entrepreneur, or did you find yourself wanting to venture out and work for yourself later on in life? Well, when I was a kid, I kind of just was naturally an entrepreneur. I got very little allowance from the parents, so I had to go out and kind of get gigs, and whether it was... uh, washing cars or doing yard work or when I got older, selling pot. Uh, just I, I was kind of naturally always engaged in some kind of commerce growing up, but I never really thought, oh, hey, when I get old, I'm going to be an entrepreneur. I always thought since I played guitar for six, seven hours a day when I was in high school, I, I thought that I was going to be a rock star so or at least so, like a studio musician or something. And I never worried about the future because I was so, I had, (laughs) I was so dumb. I really thought that I could make a living, you know, playing guitar and and that it would be great and I'd get rich and there'd be girls and all that stuff. And uh, fortunately, after about a year on the road, um, I, I toured with a country band all over the US and Canada. And I realized with very few exceptions, the life of a musician sucks. And it was time to kind of figure out a, a better way to make a living. So are you a guitarist? Are you a lead singer? What's your specialty? I just play guitar, yeah. Don't just say just play guitar. Guitar is hard. I've been trying to learn guitar for a couple of years now, and it's not that easy. 
Yeah, well, it's hard. It's hard as an, an as an adult, it, but it's really easy to learn when you're a kid because for whatever reason you can focus. You can, you know, I have been trying to, you know, do things as an adult, like learning new languages and the like. And it's it's so different as an adult, and I don't know why that my my learning muscles are so weak at this age. But uh, yeah, I would I would have much trouble trying to learn how to play guitar at this age. I don't know if you know this, but. My dad is a violin maker. He's one of the more renowned violin makers in, in the world right now. Wow, that's cool. Uh, but he forced me to play violin at the ripe age of four years old and had me practice for two hours a day for many, many years. I ultimately gave it up when I was 12 because violin is not as cool as guitar. And I just, <laughs> for some reason, just couldn't see it. Uh, but I do sympathize with musicians and, and, um, and artists because it's just so hard to make it uh, in the industry. So when did you start craving punishment as an entrepreneur? Well, um, when I really decided to become an entrepreneur was uh, in 2006. I had had a string of uh, corporate marketing jobs for tech companies. Uh, And then in in 2006, when it was announced that Google was going to be buying YouTube for $1.65 billion, uh, it was my really a, a pivotal moment in my life. I decided, okay, well, that's an indication. That's the news telling me that video on the web is going to be the next big thing, and I need to get in on that somehow. So I put in a 60-day notice to my boss, and I said, I'm going to go out, and I'm going to start a video production company. And that's what I did, and I've been doing that ever since. So that's been 15 years now that I've been a self-employed video producer. That's awesome. So you worked for a marketing agency, is that? Um, I I started out on the ad agency side, and then I moved to tech companies where I was doing in-house Marcom type stuff. So you started your own business and then you created a product and you went on Shark Tank. You're actually the second Shark Tank alumni on the Seven Hats. You were on Shark Tank season four, episode three for people back in 2012. That is correct. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that experience. How did you get in? What did you pitch the sharks? Okay. Well, the product was a posture improvement device. And the, the genesis of that creation was I was doing video work uh, for a client who was a, a tech client. And they were having me do uh, editing on location at their uh, campus. And they put me in a supply closet to do this editing. So I was working nine hours a day in about a eight by eight room surrounded by dry erase markers and reams of paper and no windows. And I called up my buddy in New York and I was like, dude, and this was when the Sham Wow commercials, you couldn't turn on the TV without seeing the Sham Wow guy. Sham Wow. Remember that? I can't do this all day. Yeah. Sham Wow. Yeah. I love him. Yep. I love him. Yep. Best Vince. one ever. Vince. Vince. Yep. But, and I thought, I thought, I called my buddy and I was like miserable in this little uh, jail cell of a, of a supply closet. And I said, dude, we need, I have a, I, I produce videos. Let's make an infomercial. That's the way that we can get rich. So he said, well, I've got an idea for a, a posture improvement device. And I said, okay, great. Let's meet in Chicago next week and let's build a prototype and get it figured out. So we, he was in New York. I was in Portland, Oregon. We met in Chicago. We spent the weekend drinking beer and playing with elastic and Velcro. And we came up with the, the name of the product. We bought the domain. We worked on uh, getting our business license and our tax ID and all that. Came back. I found a manufacturer in China. Uh, let's see, that was in March. Yeah, in, within nine months of that first uh, weekend in Chicago, we were selling the product on online. And then a couple of years after that, we decided we need to get on Shark Tank. And so we went to 
Dallas, Texas to do an open audition. That turned into a two-year process, but we ended up getting on the show and we ended up having an interesting time on the show. And I will tell you that for me, it was like skydiving in that it was a combination of absolute terror and total adrenaline. And uh, I never would ever want to go through it again. So, uh, so there, there you have it. Uh, I it was great for the business, and it was a pivotal life moment. But it was frightening, and uh, I'm glad it's over. So, your partner's name is Mike Lane. I saw the episode. I actually watched it prior to our discussion today, and it was really interesting. You guys came out. The sharks kind of attacked you a little bit in the beginning, but ultimately, Mark Cuban made a deal. What was that like and what happened there? Well, on TV, it was great. We hugged him. You know, he came out and we hugged him. And then the producers said, okay, wait, do it again. Go back to your marks and action. And then we did it again, hugged him again. So I've gotten to hug Mark Cuban twice. Um, And then we got home. We were hoping to get a deal with with Mark Cuban because he was working on all these, uh, these broadcast outlets and we have all these dumb ideas for TV shows. And so we wanted to be able to get in front of him to pitch our dumb ideas for these TV shows because we'd drink beer and come up with these stupid ideas. So it was like, great. Okay, now we got the deal with Mark. Um, comes due diligence time with his lawyers and we were on the call and we're like, okay, we, you know, we'll, we'll go as agreed. But we need to have four meetings a year with him in person. We will provide transportation. We'll go anywhere that he needs us to go. But we want four meetings a year. And the lawyer, you could just tell he had such spite in his voice. He was like, like, you guys are idiots. He didn't say that, but you could hear it in his voice. He said, I don't even get four face-to-face meetings with him a year. And he's like, he's not going to go for it. And we said, this is a non-negotiable clause in our contract. So he said, okay, well, I'll uh, take it to him and I'll call you back tomorrow. And he called us back tomorrow and he said, deal's off. And so the deal did not go through. And as it turns out, about, I, I don't know what the exact percentage is, but I'm in a private Facebook group with, uh, with hundreds of uh, alumni of Shark Tank. And the majority of deals that you see on TV, unfortunately, don't end up coming to fruition. What was the scary part? Like, so why would, why would you not do it again? I mean, obviously that exposure is incredible for any entrepreneur. So let's set aside the fact that you probably came in to pitch mark on other things and not really the business. Why was the pain so prominent in your life that you wouldn't do it again? Well, it was just the the whole experience. I mean, if if it would have, it, like, let's say I would have had a different partner, for instance, if I would have been more prepared, if I would have been less hungover, um, there's a, a hundred different factors, then I wouldn't have such trauma associated with it. But it was like the perfect storm of everything bad happening. And, uh, you know, nothing against Mike, but he on set was interrupting the, the sharks. They cut out, they, they made us look great compared to how the, the actual day went. It was, it was a nightmare. And um, he kept interrupting me and interrupting them. At, at one point, I literally jabbed him with my, sh- with my elbow to get him to stop. He had worked up all these little kind of bits and one-liners that he had kind of in his back pocket that he didn't tell me about when he first, uh, or when we would rehearse. So he's coming out with these these little one-liners that is like, dude, where, where did this come from? And so I was taken off guard by the whole experience. And anyway, and yeah, we, we were a little bit on the hungover side and 
we didn't eat breakfast and, and we had low blood sugar and uh, and Damon clearly did not like us, even though he had purchased the product and said like he had purchased it before and said it worked for him and said he had worn it on the show. He was hostile to us from the get go. If it would have been a better experience, I would have I wouldn't have so much trauma associated with it. And I would say, yeah, give me the chance to go back. I'd love to do it again. But as it is, it's like that's a chapter of my life that's over. And I'm, I'm glad. Did Mike actually quit his job? He, he did. Yes. And so what happened to the company? Well, it's still it's still around. We're still selling product, and uh, it. I mean, it's not selling a ton, but it's still viable. We every day we're still selling, and then when we re-air on CNBC, it's like a nice little shot in the arm because all of a sudden, you know, orders. It, it's funny because you know we're on Shopify, and Shopify sends you an email every time you make a sale, and so it's funny when I don't even get notified when they're going to air, but when they do, uh, all of a sudden at about. 50 minutes after the hour, it, which because ours was the last segment, all of a sudden my phone starts blowing up with orders. And it's like, oh, hey, we re-aired tonight. So that's that's a beautiful thing. And we we hope that CNBC keeps re-airing the episodes for years to come. It's a beautiful, it's it's a beautiful thing. So are you and Mike in good standings, even though he frustrated you on the show? Yeah, we have a good relationship. We don't see each other much because he's still in New York. But the night after we aired, or I'm sorry, the night after we shot things were pretty tense and he knew that he had kind of fucked up if you will and he knew that he had kind of made an ass out of himself but as it turns out they were again they were super kind to us in the edit if they would have shown some of the stuff and some of the interruptions and the frustrations it would have it would have come off bad and i was scared to death in fact when when the night that we aired because I didn't know what it was going to look like. I figured we are going to look like complete idiots. And uh, some friends of mine put together a, a viewing party and they had all, a bunch of friends got together. And of course I was supposed to be there, but I was so kind of preemptively embarrassed for what was going to be shown on the screen. I was like, no way I'm going to sit here. I'm going to sit and drink and, and just watch it and then go to bed. And uh, thankfully it did not turn out as bad as it could have. Amazing. I love Shark Tank stories. They're really awesome. For those who are going to be going on Shark Tank, I would think that Matt will say, don't drink the night before, do not go hungover. Or maybe you should. I mean, maybe that is the, the secret to getting a deal. So who knows? So you never know. So we all do stupid shit as entrepreneurs. What stupid shit did you partake in relating to your finance or any, anything else that you want to share? Well, the main stupid stuff that I did was not necessarily related to my business but it was related to how I managed the money that I made for my business. When we, after we were on Shark Tank, we ended up making a lot of money. We didn't have to give away 30% of the business. So we got to keep everything. Our margins were insane. And so we had kind of a windfall that was unexpected and uh, novel. And so what I did is I started spending it all and I started taking trips to Europe. Uh, my girlfriend and I went to Europe like five out of the six years after we aired just throwing away money like an idiot, that is really the stupidest thing that I've done. Because when I look back, if you look at the future value of the money that I flushed down the toilet, it's it's frightening how irresponsible that was of me to partake in. So speaking of finances, one of the raw moments 
in my career as an entrepreneur was back in 2011 when I was forced to to look for a job. My business was not able to support me any longer. So I resorted to driving a limo for $10 an hour. Not so much to make money uh, long-term for me, but it was more to tell the universe, I'm going to do whatever it takes to move forward and to help my family survive. And then ultimately got a job at U.S. Bank and worked at U.S. Bank while building ProMesh for eight years uh, straight, working 100 plus hour weeks. Have you experienced a time where you thought that you would have to find a job to survive? And if not, because not every business is like that, have you seen other entrepreneurs or other people in your life who came upon desperate times? And what do you think the mistakes were that they made or you made? Tell us the story. Well, for me, fortunately, I've never been forced to, to get a job, but had I, I would have. There was a point where I was not saving enough. And so I did get, uh, I've done a couple of side hustles to improve my savings rate, which has served two purposes. One, it improved my savings rate, but also it's, it makes it so that when I tell people, when I advise entrepreneurs that, hey, if you're not saving enough, you got to get a side hustle. It gives me the credibility because I can say, I've done it. I've driven an Uber car. I've got over 500 trips. I've also sold hundreds, if not thousands of items on uh, Amazon and eBay that I've gotten at uh, uh, estate sales and garage sales. So I've done the side hustle. Fortunately, though, again, it was just to supplement my savings. But my mom was also self-employed. She was self-employed for years. And watching her has been, and watching the mistakes that she made it has changed the course of my life because she screwed herself over so bad by doing a lot of the stuff that I was doing. Like she was a self-employed massage therapist down in Palo Alto. She rented her whole whole life. If she would have worked more to, to buy a house back in the 80s when she moved down there, she could have retired a millionaire. I mean, that's one area because if, if you, you know, Palo Alto, I mean, just that whole area, houses are, are insane. So she didn't buy a house. Um, she took tons of trips. She's got albums full of pictures from New Zealand and Israel and all over the place. So she was throwing her money away. And also she was not taking care of her health. So which led to this perfect storm of having to be in an assisted living facility. And I had to move her up here to Portland and I had to help pay for her existence. Tens of thousands of dollars I spent helping, you know, kind of keep her afloat. And then she she reached a point where she was on Medicaid. And, and I don't know if you know this, but in order to be on Medicaid, you have to bleed down your overall net worth to less than $2,000. So she was, for the last seven years of her life, she was totally destitute. Her social security paid for her um, nursing home and left her like $40 a month. And so again, anytime she needed anything, I had to pay for it. And it's it's brutal to see someone who was self-employed, who had promise, who was driven, but who didn't take the steps necessary for those, you know, what, whether it's 20, 30, or 40 years of your career to plan for the future and then have yourself be totally screwed by your deeds or your lack of action. And it was heartbreaking to watch. And it was also heartbreaking to, to know that she understood that she had screwed herself. And she had to live with that pain and regret every day. How did that affect you mentally? Well, it, it, A, it scared the hell out of me and scared me into action, changed the way that I, I feel about saving because 
you know, we, we entrepreneurs, we kind of, we see a, a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. It's our natural inclination to think, okay, our business is going to end up financing our old age. And unfortunately that in general is not true. So I, I kind of took my retirement plan and I did what I recommend doing, which is basically turning it into a business, got out of the stock market, started buying real estate. And now I'm at a point where I am kind of in pre-tirement, I call it, because I don't have to save anymore. All my investments are sitting there growing and will be able to finance my retirement when I turn 59 and a half and I can start uh, collecting, um, taking distributions without penalty from my accounts. So you're an economics major, but you went into marketing. Was your mom's destitute the catalyst for you becoming passionate on alternative retirement investment strategies and other financial workings within your business? Yeah, I think that was a big driver because, I mean, my dad always told me, hey, you know, you got to save, you got to put away, pay yourself first, all those all those things that your, your dad will say to tell you, hey, you know, take care of yourself in your future. But because I'm a short-sighted idiot male, I, I did not take that advice. But then seeing the repercussions of not taking that advice, living out in living color, and then me having to basically be punished by having to help subsidize her life. Yeah, that that drove me to say, hey, I got to get this shit managed and I got to do it now. You didn't have formal training, right? So you were self-taught on, this, on the subject, but what did you do and how did you teach yourself? The first thing is, is just, I mean, really, and I have so many entrepreneur friends who have their heads in the sand about their old age. And they, they use those cliches like, I love what I do, so I'm going to keep doing it. And I, uh, or my, my business is going to have such a book that I'll be able to sell it and exit when I'm you know, 62 and I'll be able to skate off into the sunset. And, and again, most of that is unfortunately not going to happen. So for me, what I did is I just started absorbing as much information as I could. Once I realized, hey, I've got to manage this. I've got to take control of it. Nobody's going to really help me. I don't trust a financial advisor because I know, I mean, you can, all you have to do is Google financial advisors to find out they're not getting any better returns than index funds in general. They're, they're, they're picking high fee mutual funds for you and, and then taking high fees on top of that. It's like, I don't trust anyone who's getting a piece or getting a taste of the action from my money. I just, I just don't. And also as an entrepreneur, I believe that if I'm smart enough to figure out all the crap that I have to go through to start a business and maintain it, I can figure out my retirement. So it just, it started out just with, you know, reading books, listening to podcasts, reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I mean, that book completely changed. It shifted the way I think. It started me thinking about, you know, real assets versus cash flow, and 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 just kind of, I went through an evolution after having read that book, and then you know, listening to podcasts, uh, listening to real estate podcasts, talking to real estate investors, and meeting people who were successful in real estate, just basically trying to absorb as much as I could, and then essentially taking notes. I have books full of notes about investing and um, doing pro formas. You know, is this house going to cash flow? And it, it just became an absolute obsession. And that's how I, uh, I kind of learned how to do it. I love it. I love the initiative of actually becoming self-taught. I think that's, that speaks to your passion. So let's transition to some guidelines and maybe some advice for all the entrepreneurs who are looking in the face of potentially saving, creating some sort of nest egg, uh, an emergency fund. So 
you have to kind of know the rules before you can break them. I think you speak to that. And there are a couple of rules that I think are important to give the gravity of time as it relates to finances. So there's the 4% rule, and then there's the 72 rule. What are they? And give us a little context so we can uh, learn a little bit from that. Okay. Well, the the 4% rule um, basically is a, it's kind of essentially a distribution percentage kind of a rule of thumb. And basically it, it tells you that if you have a certain nest egg, if you want it to last for 30 plus years of retirement, you can't take out or you shouldn't take out more than 4% per year. And there's a lot more to it. There's, there's nuance to it and whatnot, but essentially if you want to make 80 grand a year when you're retiring, you need to have $2 million in the markets. And, and that's the, the 4% rule is based on like a 60-40 or a, maybe a, even a 50-50 stock bond split, but your results will vary. But the long and the short of it is, is that when I started reading about the 4% rule, I started thinking to myself, yeah, I want to make, let's say, 80 grand a year. I'm nowhere close to having 2 million bucks. So that's the, that's like the the first thing I tell people is, look, if you are on track to have enough money saved to where 4% a year of that saved money will support you, then you're doing great. You're doing great. Keep doing what you're doing. But if you don't, then you need to either increase your return rates and try new assets to invest in, or you need to dramatically increase your savings rate. And that doesn't account for any tragedies and any black swan events. So if you're the market crashes around the time that you need to withdraw funds, you could substantially decrease the amount that you can withdraw in order to keep your retirement going. Yeah. I mean, say you've got a million bucks in the bank or in, in the market in 2009, and in 2010, it's now 700,000 or 650. All of a sudden, if you were counting on that needing that whole 4%, 4% of 700 is a lot less than 4% of a million. So yeah, if if you have one of these events, you can be hobbled. And so, you know, timing is, and that's, that's another thing that really frightened me. It's like, okay, if I retire, I just got to make sure that I retire during a bull market so that I don't get struck by something like that. So yeah, I mean, that's, the, that's something that in general, the 4% rule kind of does take into account those events because they bill benjen the guy who came up with it did it over you know 150 or so different terms regardless if your nest egg gets wiped out if 40 percent of your nest egg gets wiped out one year you're in big trouble and what about the rule of 72 yeah so the rule of 72 is generally essentially it's a little mental tool that you can use to figure out how quickly your money is going to double so if i uh, let's pretend your interest rate is then you divide that into 72 and that'll give you the number of years that it will take in order for that, uh, that nest egg to double. So that'd be uh, at 8%, your nest egg is going to double every nine years using that tool. Like I realized, Oh, Hey, I'm not going to get to 10 million until, or get to 2 million until I'm, you know, about 70 years old. So, cause I was behind. So I, I love having that rule of 72 in my pocket. So A, I can keep track of how how long it's going to take for, for whatever to double, but also it will t- tell you how long it's going to take for something to have, which means that essentially it tells you how long it's going to take for your purchasing power to decrease by half. And um, that's another frightening thing that 
we, me, myself included, rarely fully take into account is the inflation rate. For one thing, it's very hard to actually put a number on inflation because it's it's such a wide, wide basket of goods. But you need to realize that the purchasing power of your money is going down by half pretty much at least every 15 years. So if it costs you 80 grand a year to live today, and you think it's going to cost you about the same amount 15 years from now, then you need to be on track to be making 160 grand in order to retain your lifestyle. Especially during times such as we're living, where trillions of dollars are being printed, that inflationary circumstance can just creep up on you quickly, as it, as I'm sure you can see, right? I mean, there are those that say there's no inflation happening now, but seems to me like everything else, everything is pretty expensive, much more expensive than it was a year or two ago. So speaking of inflation, where should you hold your asset? Would you recommend having a savings account or would you recommend investing your assets elsewhere? First of all, um, I'm not a financial advisor. So any, any advice that I would give or, or anything that I would tell someone, be sure to see a, a certified financial counselor or the like to get real data. What I would say is, you're right. The Fed is the Fed is creating money out of vapor. Okay, we used to sell our debt through treasuries to other countries, and they would actually buy the debt. So we were essentially borrowing it from other countries, and now that has kind of reached the point where essentially the Federal Reserve is just giving us money, and so we're kind of borrowing from ourselves right now. So we're creating money out of nowhere. We're increasing the overall money supply. Long story short. The more money you have, that's called, uh, you know, essentially monetary inflation, the more prices are going to increase. It's, there's, you can't argue it. And I, in the town hall last week, Biden said that if we do a couple of more uh, infrastructure bills, it will actually reduce inflation. And unfortunately, that's economically, that doesn't hold water. So where should you have your money? You should have your money in things that grow when inflation happens. Okay. So, since I own houses, inflation is going to pump up their value. And this is why I, I feel so bad for our, our friends who are lower middle class who have to rent because rents are going to keep going up. My mortgages are locked in. 10 years from now, it, they're going to seem like nothing. But if you're renting, everything, the price of everything is going to go up. So if you do put your money in a savings account, A, the value of that money is going to go down. But overall, if you don't own assets that appreciate, your net worth is constantly going down and it's accelerating as we keep printing more or, you know, printing in finger quotes, more and more money. So my past life, um, I used to manage the 401k and pension plans for some of the largest corporations in the world. So we're going to speak about a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. Obviously, you don't recommend having a whole bunch of cash and savings accounts. So where should it be? Because emergency funds are just that. They're for emergencies. And if you go into a typical 401k and you're not 59 and a half, you're going to pay a penalty. Or even if you take a loan, you still have to pay it back. Where should the entrepreneur put their extra reserves, considering that they're going to think about the 4% room, the 72 rule in terms of how much money do I need to put in currently? But also if an emergency happens, what can I do to cash out without paying a penalty? So what would you recommend? An emergency fund, pretty much that's one thing that all financial gurus and money people all agree that we all need to have some pile of money 
saved up, ready to go in case something happens, whether it's a a health issue, the loss of a job, the car blows up, whatever. We need to have an emergency fund. The problem with having an emergency fund, though, is that the money isn't working for you. Okay, so it's it's sitting there stagnant. And like we were talking about with inflation, it's losing value all the time. And an emergency fund is kind of like insurance. In general, we hope to not have to use it. So if we've got 15 grand in our emergency fund and we hope not to use it and we sit have it sitting in an account that's drawing a one and a half percent interest, then that money is losing value every year. So what I tell people is, and I mean, clearly there's a ton of other places where you can put your money, but one of the easiest ways to have your money be liquid and have your money be working for you is to open a Roth IRA and put your money like you could you can open it a Roth IRA at Vanguard tomorrow and it takes five minutes. It's it's simple. I have mine on E-Trade and you can basically you put in your after-tax dollars. Um annually the contribution limit is six thousand dollars if you're under 50. You can put your money in there and put it into some index low fee mutual funds so that at least it's it's growing. If you need if you have a car accident, you can sell those mutual funds and you can take out any of your contributions that you've put into a Roth. You can't you can't take out any of your gains until you're 59 and a half without penalty. But the beautiful thing about the Roth is that it's any money that you've put in there, you can always take out. And I tell people, look, you know, and then they say, well, I don't want to buy a mutual fund because then it's not liquid. Well, technically, most of us don't have emergencies unless like we're in jail and we need to post bail. Most of us don't have emergencies that uh, require money right now. If you anticipate your emergencies not not being uh, necessitating getting money today, then this is a perfect way. It'll take you, if you did need the money, it'll take you a day or so to sell your whatever assets you have, and it'll take a day or so to transfer it back to your checking account. But that's not a big deal, and it's a beautiful way to kind of be thinking about your future while also ensuring the present. Do you suggest, for beginners at least, to just go with the Fidelity funds or the Vanguard funds and just forget about it and kind of diversify that way? Or do you suggest that they go into some alternative assets like gold or silver or other inflationary type of assets that that would help uh, in the case of devalued currency? That comes back to your risk tolerance because holding gold and holding silver is a risky proposition because there have been times when it's dropped severely. And then there's been times when it's plateaued and sat like it has since August of last year. The price of gold really hasn't changed much if, in fact, maybe it's gone down. But I mean, it's been floating around that 1800 level for close to a year. A lot of people are scared about metals. I mean, I I have a, a box full of little silver bars that are 10 ounce bars because I like them and they make me feel good. But that's that is a that's just a psychological thing. So I don't necessarily recommend uh, for or against precious metals. As far as real estate, I really, really recommend real estate. But if you don't have enough money to get into it, if you don't have enough money to have the reserves, you know there are people out there who do what they call apartment syndications, where essentially they're needing a pool of people to get together and put in, you know, ten grand, twenty-five grand, fifty, put together the down payment. And so then they can go to a bank and finance the purchase of an apartment building. And I've been in on on many, well, not many, but multiple real estate syndications, one of which only cost me 25 grand to get into. That's a brilliant way to get into real estate because you get all the advantages of the growth 
and the the cash flow but you don't have to buy the house you don't have to call uh, get the get the midnight call to fix a toilet you don't have to deal with uh, loans and it's it's a it's a beautiful way to just get into that uh, sector how does someone go about finding that opportunity you just look it up online no i would not look it up online cuz most people who advertise for investment opportunities scare me so if if you're out there advertising then there, there's something wrong okay because the guys who are good at it money money finds people and people find money so what i did is i would listen to podcasts in, including the the granddaddy of all real estate podcasts the um bigger pockets podcast and i would listen to if if someone was doing real estate syndication as soon as i was done listening to the podcast i'd send them an email and i'd say i want to have a call with you then i would have a call and there are some SEC regulations about relationships, and I, I won't get into it, but basically, if you establish a relationship with someone and you know them for six months, then if they are essentially engaged in selling securities, which is kind of what these things are, a real estate syndication, then they can have you in if you're not an accredited investor. And so long, long story short, an accredited investor has a certain level of net worth that is more than I have. And so I would develop these relationships with these guys. And then when they had a, an offering come up, like, I'm, okay, I'm going to buy a, an apartment building in Lexington, Kentucky. Do you want to give me 25 grand? I'd be like, yes, sir. I'll give you 25 grand. And, uh, and so that was how I found those people. And there's actually, even now there's podcasts uh, specifically about real estate syndications. In fact, there's a guy named Whitney Sewell. Uh, shout out to Whitney. I've given him my money before. He has a pod, a daily podcast about real estate syndication. And so the information is out there. And that is how I would recommend finding these people because it's hard to just find them. You're, you're never going to find them in your local area in general. Uh, so finding them on a podcast is a great way to get real, uh, legitimate, reputable people. That's gold. I mean, that's I, I really haven't even heard about real estate syndication. So that's something that I'm going to look up and speak with you about. We've obviously covered a topic that cannot be discussed on one podcast, uh, finances, right? And investments. But everybody knows about 401ks. We just heard about Roth IRAs. We understand some of the rules. We understand that real estate might be a really good investment to go into if you have the financial means. The The overarching message here is make sure you do something to save. Don't just spend your money and do stupid shit and then regret it like your mom, right? And then having someone to support you. I do want to cover one more option and that's an HSA. Um, I think some might have heard about it, but it's I, I just think it's an underrated investment opportunity. Uh, so HSAs are healthcare spending accounts. They have a triple tax advantage. And I'd love for you to speak about that for a couple of minutes, just so some of the entrepreneurs who never even heard of an HSA aware of it because it's such a powerful investment opportunity. Yeah, the HSA is awesome. It is a triple tax advantaged option. The reason it's so great for self-employed people and entrepreneurs is because most of us are on what you would call high deductible insurance plans. And because we have these high deductible insurance plans, a lot of us do, we are eligible for this account, this, this vehicle. And essentially, you make contributions to your HSA and that contribution is essentially tax deductible at the time you put it in. So that's one tax advantage right there. You've, if you fund your HSA this year, it's going to reduce your tax liability next year. Item number two is that as the money grows inside that HSA account, it grows tax-free. So that's number two. And then when you end up pulling the money out to spend it on a qualified 
health-related purchase, whether it's prescription drugs, doctor's appointments, broken bones, uh, the list goes on, that money is given to you tax-free. So those are the three tax advantages of an HSA. It's a beautiful thing. The statistics are unclear, but one can pretty much, if you're going to be retiring at, say, 65 and you're going to live 30 years, your health care bills are going to be in the multiple hundreds of thousands. And I've read estimates that it's going to be you know, you can expect if you're 50 years old today, you can expect to spend $225,000. And I've seen you could expect to spend 600000 So it, the, the, the predictions are all over the map. But if you start saving using this HSA today, you can take a big chunk out of those expenses tomorrow. Yep. No, it's, it's a brilliant investment opportunity. You speak a lot about Dave Ramsey and David Bach, both very powerful personas in the financial space. And you've been very vocal in their advice. What would you say is the one piece that, in terms of advice, that you would warn others against? Well, first of all, I really like David Bach. There's just one main piece of advice that he gives that bugs me. Um, I, I, I really don't like David Ramsey, but that's part, part of it is just for personal reasons. Um, and part of it is for the way he runs his business. Overall, the one piece of advice that they give that I think is terrible is to pay down your mortgage by putting in an extra $100 or so a month. And that sounds great on paper because if, if you do the calculations, in general, you put in an extra 100 bucks a month, you could knock off five years off of the life of that loan. Okay, that sounds great. Today, lo- today there's sub 2% 30-year fixed mortgages, which is historically, since, since day one, since we've been lending money since Old Testament days, that's never been seen, okay? So we're in a, an exceptional an exceptional time. The value of money is decreasing at faster than 3% per year. So the longer that you can hold that loan, the better off you are. And why I say that is if you instead took that $100 a month and put it into a, a simple index Vanguard mutual fund, I, did, I, run the, I ran the calculations, but you would end up eight, at least $85,000 wealthier once that house was paid off, if you saved that money instead of paying down your mortgage. And that includes having a, a, that last five years, that being mortgage-free, and then taking your entire mortgage and putting it into investments. That's $85,000 you would be ahead if you did not take their advice. And would you change your mind if, the, if we were living in high inflationary times? Yes. Yeah. If, if we were at, uh, let's say, you know, like back in the seventies, I remember my mom had a, uh, a mortgage that was 13%. Um, chances are, I, I would say, yeah, you'd want to pay that down, but you can run the numbers. And I, I know that for me, like for instance, I I'm in some real estate syndications where like one of them, the first one that I got in and out of in only like three years, that one paid me 23%. So technically, I would be doing better to not pay off that mortgage and invest that money if I could get those kind of returns. Yeah, it's all about the returns. So you've kind of knocked your head against the wall for a little bit. You've had multiple businesses. You're a true entrepreneur. You have passion for investing. You're doing a lot of cool things, which we'll talk about in a second. Tell us a little bit about your internal story, your monkey brain. How did that evolve from when you first started 15, 20 years ago to where you are right now? Really, what what I'm I'm dealing with today is the fact that now I'm I'm in a position where I can enjoy what I'm doing. I always was 
kind of, I would do the absolute minimum that I could in order to get by. I was not a, a real go-getter. I've never been a hustler. I've never been just like a massive action. I've never worked the hours like you've done. You know, I've kind of gotten by and it's been great. But now that I have found a business that I'm passionate about, which is this goofy podcasting business, I'm thinking about it 24-7. That shift has made every day better and it's made every day juicier. So my advice for entrepreneurs based on that is if you're not getting juice out of your business and if it's not really fueling you and fueling your brain and fueling your soul, then it might be time to look at other business opportunities because the drudgery of doing something that you're not passionate about will take its toll on you in time. My big shift is that today I am super, super passionate about what I'm doing and um, it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing. It is a beautiful thing. So what are you doing? So I'm, I'm hosting a, a podcast called The Rogue Retirement Lounge. And that is uh, pretty much my almost my total focus these days. So you're not focusing so much on the other two businesses or are you selling them? What what are you doing with those with those two businesses? Well, the the posture business that's kind of on autopilot. Um and then the other business I'm I, I'll take a job if it comes in. And in fact, I might have uh, some work next week, which is great. But because my expenses now are so low, I really can kind of, I'm kind of coasting. So yeah, so I'm, I'm spending the majority of my time on the podcast and I'm not monetizing it yet. And I, I, I mean that I hope to down the line, but at this point it's just about, it's a full on passion project and uh, it's, uh, it's so much fun. A labor of love. I love that. That's what the seven hats is about as well. And, and, you know, it's a good reminder that to the entrepreneur that if you do save up, if you do have financial means, you'll have a much greater opportunity to do what you love to do and take on more projects that really fulfill you. So thank you for that. And I think that's a great, great reminder. How can the Seven Hatters contact Matt Franklin? Uh, you can reach me through my website, which is uh, rogue, R-O-G-U-E, retirementlounge.com. And uh, you can leave me a voicemail on there. I'm on LinkedIn and I'm also on the Twitter, which I'm, I'm not a big social guy, but, uh, but yeah, I, the, my Twitter handle is lounge rogue. And, um, but the main way just to kind of see what I'm doing is to go to any, any podcast player and search for the rogue retirement lounge. Come on, you are a social guy. You're drinking before <laughs> Shark Tank. You, you like, you like to enjoy. So I think if anybody wants to grab a beer, I think you are very social. Yeah, if you're in Portland, yeah, if 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 uh, you've all if you're ever in Portland, I I will would love to buy you a beer. And to anyone who's listening, if you uh, want to come to Portland and want to uh, go around and look at the uh, the fires, the burned out cars, and the needles and whatnot, I'll uh, give you a give you a grand tour of the burning city. It's a new business for you, a new business opportunity. The tour <laughs> of the homeless population, yeah. the drug uh, addicts, and yeah, I think that yeah. and the the burning fires. Uh, the funny thing is, I will be in Portland oh, uh, in the next few months, so I will definitely reach out. I would appreciate for, that. Absolutely. It, it's been a pleasure, uh, Matt, and I hope that the Seven Hatters got something, at least some spark of curiosity to do a little more research on their investing and uh, their finances because it's just so important. Thank you again for joining us, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you. This is great. appreciate it. Of course, Matt. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Matt. So let's end today with the segment of the show that I refer to as, what can we hang our hat on? And here's my takeaway. 
Like many entrepreneurs, I found myself investing every dollar into my business without a care in the world about my future. In my mind, my company was going to take care of my family's financial needs. I was betting against the odds, and as they say in Las Vegas, the house won. When my first company could no longer pay the bills, I was forced to get a full-time job to support our family. It hurt. It hurt that I invested all of my retirement savings and all of my wife's retirement savings, as well as her condo, back into the business. Except for a million dollars in debt, I had nothing to show for my long nights, the grind, and the pain we suffered growing the business. Matt experienced a similar outcome with his mom becoming destitute in her later years. The difference between Matt's mom and me is that I got a second chance in life. I was young enough to start over, and better yet, start smarter. So with my second company, Promomash, I saved for a rainy day. And when COVID arrived at our doorsteps, I was able to continue to operate without going back to driving a limo or working in a bank. Entrepreneurs, heed Matt's message. The house nearly always wins. So make sure you start saving and keep something in reserve for a rainy day. It will come soon enough. I want to thank Matt Franklin once again for being vulnerable and sharing his story so that we all can benefit from his wisdom. If you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you got from it so we can attract even more high-quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selick, and I tip my hat to you.